It's December 28th, 2016, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's science, technology, and of course, startup scene. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. We're going to kick off today's show with an upcoming event. We're going to hear from Bree Duros from Tech System, who's going to tell us about the Tech Talk Story Pauhana coming up this week. Then we're going to be joined by Rich Pyle from the Bishop Museum. He's going to tell us about the new species of coral fish that's been named after our president. And of course, then after the break, we'll talk about the upcoming East Meets West Conference and of course, what it takes to break into the Asian marketplace. Joining us are Casey Lau and, of, from Blue Startups, of course, mm-hmm. and uh, Rob Hack, Hack from Insight InterAsia. Can Hawaii be at the crossroads of East meets West for technology startups? What benefits might it offer? What are some of the opportunities and what are the differences in those markets? You, of course, can join the conversation as well. You can call in or send us a tweet after the break. Well, first up, we want to welcome Brie Duros from Tech Systems, and she's here to tell us about the upcoming Tech Talk Pauhana. Welcome to the show, Brie. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, what is? Uh, tell us a little bit about Tech Systems. What do you guys do? T-E-K. T-E-K. Yes. But it sounds kind of techy. <laughs> it is, <very> right? <laughs> yeah, it is very techy. Tech Systems uh, is an IT staffing and services company. Uh, we're a national company and, and then have a presence here in Honolulu. We're actually the only IT staffing company uh, within the Honolulu market. So uh, but there's other staffing organizations that do fulfill vacancies that that are IT, right? Right, there are. Um, Tech Systems is a little unique, though, in that we strictly focus on IT, so we have a specialty there, Mm -hmm. um, and we're very well trained and and versed in in the IT language. Um, So we really pride ourselves on being experts in the IT field. And I would imagine that you bridge the the gap from both sides, both people who have these skills, IT skills in particular, that are looking for employment, but also for companies that are trying to fill that specific role within their company looking for IT staff. Yes, absolutely. We support about 40 clients here locally uh, within the commercial and government sectors. And if you can believe it, there's actually 9,000 IT professionals uh, just on island here. Working. Uh, yes, most of them are working. I think the unemployment rate in IT is actually less than 1% on this island. So, so Do you have definitely. a sense as to how many vacancies there might be in IT? Um, certainly within the new year, we do expect a, a lot of vacancies to open up. Um, I can't say exactly how many, but for sure there are more open positions and there are people to fill them. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, uh, having uh, a company that focuses on the uh, staffing for IT, are there any segments within the IT spectrum that seem to be in more demand than others? Um, I think certainly, as, as I specialize within applications, so anything having to do with the software development lifecycle, um, .NET developers are always in high demand, mm. as are QA analysts or business intelligence specialists. What about, the, what about things like a cybersecurity? Because there's a big initiative within the state to kind of build expertise around cybersecurity. Yeah, cybersecurity is, is definitely a booming industry, especially as we move forward into 2017 and, and cloud technology becomes much more popular. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have a network infrastructure division within tech, tech, tech systems um, that focuses exclusively on security. Good. Now, tell us a little bit about this uh, this meetup. I mean, this is something that you've been doing for several months now? Yeah, so it's been live for about four or five months. Uh, my partner, Ashley Bovee, and I uh, created the event just as a way to kind of get some technical folks talking and meeting and mingling um, within the market, which is much smaller than other mainland markets. It's all about who you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so we love to get people meeting, and, and networking is really the point. Now, do you, uh, you know, in terms of uh, trying to get people to attend? Are you looking for IT people to attend or just sort of a general networking? And 
And what do you really want to try to accomplish as a result of that? It definitely has an IT focus, um, specifically more technical skill sets like software developers, testers, data analysts. Um, we meet once every month and alternate between luncheons and happy hours. So mm -hmm. the event tomorrow mm -hmm. is, is more of a casual gathering, uh, just a way for you to get to know some other local folks uh, within your industry. Um, but then the luncheons that we do will have some guest speakers. So last month we had an applications manager from Hawaiian Telecom give a speech on test-driven development. And next month we'll have a, a scrum master from HMSA give a speech on Agile. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like tomorrow's event is the evening one, more of a casual one. Um, tell us about that. Yeah, a little more casual, trying to keep it light for the holidays. So we will be meeting tomorrow at Moku Kitchen, uh, which is a new hot spot That's here right. in Kaka'ako. Um, so we'll all be meeting there around 5 p.m. Uh, and then it will go about till 7 or, or whenever you want to leave, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, are you familiar with the, uh, the HTDC? holiday tech fair that's going on? I on? am. I am. I know it's going on right now. A lot of my colleagues are there. Uh -huh. Fantastic. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of interest on the part of organizations like HTDC to kind of grow this marketplace. In fact, uh, they have, Robbie Melton has uh, one of the initiatives is the uh, 8080, 80,000 new jobs at $80,000 by, what, 2030? I mean, I'm, I'm sure you guys play a, <laughs> a, 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 a role in that. It's definitely a, a great initiative, especially for uh, local folks who are who are from Hawaii and want to stay in this island. Uh, we definitely want to want to grow the IT industry here and, and create opportunities for for everyone. Now, tech systems, broadly speaking, I mean, we, for example, the tech fair tonight over at the Japanese Cultural Center really kind of focuses on bringing expats back home, people who've left Hawaii thinking there were no technology opportunities and saying there are, in fact, tech jobs here. Um, for your company, is there a lot of focus on, for example, expats, people coming back, keeping local people here. I mean, um, is there a specialty or a trend that you can speak to? I mean, certainly we, we always try to stay local first. Uh, we definitely have an interest in helping the local folks uh, who are looking for jobs immediately. Um, certainly we do find a lot of people who now live on the mainland or originally from Hawaii or have lived here before and have an interest in coming back. Um, so really my, my job is just all about being a career consultant to them and, and educating them on the market here. It is a little bit different to mainland opportunities you'll see. Like I said earlier, Hawaii really values relationships and, mm. and really having that close-knit community kind of feel. So maybe a, a little different from the mainland where everything is about work first, play later, and, and here people really want to get to know you. Now, in terms of uh, tech systems, tech systems, you said, is a, a, a staffing agency. Do you fill those positions that companies have? So you, you look for candidates and actually get them sort of interviewed, or do you actually outsource uh, workers as well? Um, so we work, like I said earlier, with about 40 clients here on island. Uh, they provide us with open positions that they're trying to fill. Um, mm -hmm. So we talk to candidates and, and we'll ideally get them, in, them into those roles uh, as long as it's relevant to what they're looking for. Um, but part of our role as well is just to be a resource in the market. If I know about a position that I cannot represent you for, um, but you may be a good fit, I'm, I'm more than happy to give you tips on landing that job as well. For tomorrow's event, is there a program? Do people bring their resumes, business cards, uh, apps they've built? I mean, I'm kind of curious. Yeah. What that uh, environment is like. What if if someone's listening and saying, "Hey, I'm an IT person. I'm interested in these opportunities." Uh, it sounds like the specialty is something that would be benefit me, and I show up at this cool new hotspot in Kakaako. Uh, what do I do? Well, I think you would just walk in and ask for tech systems, and hopefully they would show you to a very big table of, of people. Um, our pauhanas usually are pretty informal and, and pretty casual, really more about talking story with each other and, and getting to know your local folks in, in the industry. Um, when we have the luncheons, that's a little more uh, you know, scheduled, has mm -hmm. an agenda. Uh, we do have a speaker and, and things like that. But tomorrow is just all about keeping it casual and, and cool for the holidays so here. They so they shouldn't be prepared with their thumb drive with 
with the resume on it. And, yeah. I mean, you certainly can. I'm sure <laughs> anybody there would love to, to hear about it and talk about it. So uh, I think IT folks in general are always happy to chat about the latest trends or any projects that you're working on. So Very good. we definitely do. We definitely do get to uh, those topics. Well, a fair question would be, I mean, you're, are you drawing largely to the job seekers or opportunity seekers, people exploring those opportunities? Or do you see employers even coming to these events just to Scope see what's out. out there. Yeah, you know, I think we get a pretty pretty even mix. Uh, we do have some people that are currently employed through us or not through us who aren't looking for jobs and are just looking to really network. Uh, we also get, a, you know, a mixture of, of job seekers who are actively seeking new opportunities now. And we also have some of our hiring managers that will come uh, just to check out the local talent or, you know, to, to meet, and, meet and greet, right? So real quick, where, when uh, is this event? Tomorrow? Yeah, so it is tomorrow. That's Thursday, December 29th. It will be held at Moku Kitchen in Kaka'ako, uh, which is there on Alamoana Boulevard. We'll all be meeting between 4.30 and 5 p.m. Uh, officially goes through 7, but you're welcome to stay longer if you'd like. And where no. would people go to find out more information? Um, so right now it's just on hnl.io. Oh, okay. um, that's where we have it listed. You can also check out the Tech Systems Honolulu website. Um, and as we kind of grow our, our customer base here, we'll hopefully get a, a mailing list out to you guys soon. Very Fantastic. good. Well, hnl.io, that's uh, where I found you. So very good. <laughs> well, thanks, uh, Bree, for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much. It was great to be here. And of course, now we want to welcome Richard Powell, who is a regular on this show almost. I mean, he's from Bishop Museum. He's got something about a name of a new species of coral fish that we want to jump into and find out more about. Welcome to the show, Rich. Thanks. It's always a pleasure to be welcome here. Welcome back. We're Thank big you. fans. Yeah. So now you kind of alluded to this fish that got a new name and it got named by, you know, by, well, President Obama has his name in the fish. But it was something that was discovered earlier this year, maybe around summertime. Tell us a little bit about the timeline of what actually happened. Yeah, sure. So um, every year since about 2009, uh, we've gone up on a cruise with the Papahanao Mokuakea Marine National Monument, mm -hmm. NOAA's operation, to go survey the deep coral reefs. Now, as we talked about on a prior show, we use this high-tech dive gear, closed-circuit rebreathers with mixed gases and helium that mm -hmm. allow us to go considerably deeper than most scuba divers can go. And so our goal this on this cruise every year is to survey these deep coral reefs and see what's down deeper, you know, 200 feet, 300 feet, maybe even a little deeper than that. So this year's cruise, uh, we went up into the monument, as we have done before, and we got all the way up to the very end of the monument at Curie Atoll, which is uh, the farthest northwest you can get up there and still be standing on land. And we're doing a dive, and um, towards the end of our, one of our dives up there, I something caught my eye, and I thought, well, that's not something I recognize. Mm -hmm. So that's usually where these discoveries begin. You know, you're on a dive, you've been there before, it's looking pretty familiar, it's kind of regular, and then all of a sudden, hey, what's that? <laughs> so you knew pretty quickly that you were seeing something that perhaps had not been cataloged and identified previously? Yeah, well, so, you know, we see a lot of old familiar faces on those deep reefs. They weren't familiar when we first started doing it, but now that we've been up there several years, it's sort of becoming, uh, you know, fairly regular. But but in this occasion, I you know, what caught my eye was a little fish, which I misidentified initially as a very common fish, but it had a mark on its uh, dorsal fin, which I misinterpreted as a parasite. And I thought to myself, oh, that's weird. You don't usually just see... just a sick fish. <laughs> yeah, we don't usually see parasites on these fish. So I got my camera ready and I thought, I'll, I'll film this fish with a parasite on it. And then as soon as I got a close look, 
I realized, wait a minute, that's not a parasite. That's a that's a spot. And this fish doesn't have a spot. And that's where the brain starts going, well, who are you? I don't mm-hmm, recognize mm-hmm. you. And so that was sort of the moment of discovery. And those are the moments that really drive us for doing this, this excitement of going, oh, my gosh, this is something nobody's ever seen before. Mm-hmm. So, What's the uh, – this is pretty deep, right? What, what level of uh, sea level are you at? So this was about 300 feet deep, mm-hmm. um, which is a lot deeper than you ever want to go using regular scuba. Mm-hmm. We're using special gas mixtures, helium and high-tech rebreathers to get down that deep. Um, what's interesting, though, in the habitat where we found this, it's actually an ancient shoreline. Um, so the habitat is these little undercut limestone ledges, which many thousands of years ago used to be where sea level was. So essentially we were on what was the shoreline nice. thousands of years ago, but now the sea level has has, has risen, and, and now it's 300 feet underwater. Mm-hmm. So that's the habitat. So now you've said you, you bring it back, you study it, you say, okay, this is something new. And we talk about naming a lot. It's always kind of one of the fun parts of science, whether it's new planets or solar systems or objects in space. Here we have a new species. How does that naming process happen? I mean, first it has a family, correct? Yeah, well, so first of all, step one is do we have a new species here? So we collected some specimens. Uh, I collected one and, and my colleague Brian Green collected one the following day at Pearl and Hermes and we bring them up to the lab and take a close look at them and get close photographs and look at our you know books and the liter- literature and make sure that this is not something that is well known. So we get to the point where we realize it is a new species. And then there's a process for describing that new species. Mm-hmm. That's the word we use, describing. Um, and, of course, the funnest part is choosing what the name's going to be. Uh, but that's th- that's a very short process, usually. That, that, that part's obvious. In this case, it took us a little bit of discussion. It wasn't well, going to be Richardus Pileus? Oh, yeah, heavens, yeah. no. You do not name a fish after yourself. That's <laughs> just that's Okay, just okay. Well, you could have chose Bert Lombard, but, but I could what, have. Is it, what is it that actually <laughs> went on that discussion that you guys might have had maybe over, I don't know, maybe... <laughs> Eating sushi <laughs> or sashimi. Well, just to be well, clear, it's a, it's a Noah ship. It's a dry ship, so there was definitely no alcohol. Well, involved I didn't in this say. Yeah, I know. Well, I thought I, maybe you know, know, maybe some sashimi. There might, was might some sashimi. <laughs> so the process was well. Basically, this happened in June of this year um, while we were up there, and that was right when there was a movement uh, here in the Hawaiian Islands trying to convince President Obama to expand the monument, the mm-hmm, Papa Anaomukuakea mm-hmm, monument, mm-hmm. out from 50 miles, which is what it had been established by President Bush, to 200 miles. The right. full uh, EEZ zone. So, so that was an ongoing conversation uh, with the White House staff and people, you know, trying to get this this case made that this should be a bigger monument. And so that was fresh in our minds. And we, you know, it started off as sort of a offhand. Well, well, if he expands the monument, we should name this new fish after him. And then we thought, well, actually, yeah, we should. If, if he does name it, uh, you know, if he does expand the monument, then th- it's certainly worthy of an honor of having a fish discovered within the monument mm-hmm, named mm-hmm. after him. And then there's a secondary thing, which I, the photographs that exist of this fish are not really showing this very well, but I promise you in real life it was clearer. That spot that That's first why. caught my attention, <laughs> it's a blue ring with sort of red and yellow wavy lines in the hmm, middle of it. What and does that remind And you? it actually kind of looks a little bit in the right light like the President Obama's campaign logo. Ah, and so I thought, yes. well, that's a second reason okay. why it's appropriate to name it after now, the president. Now, did you get a reaction from President Obama? I mean, you know, after naming this fish after him and, and him actually looking at this fish and saying, wow, that's a that's an impressive looking fish. Well, I didn't 
I haven't personally spoken with him. I you know would love to field a call from him and, and tell him the whole story. I guess he now can hear it on the radio. Um, but um, uh, he's an avid listener. An interesting uh, an interesting opportunity came up when um, you you probably know of Sylvia Earle. She's a famous underwater explorer. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm involved with a, a National Geographic documentary, including her, that features the monuments, and so the the Papahanao Mokuakea was one of the main features. And and they arranged for Sylvia and I to go up to Midway Atoll the day before President Obama visited uh, Midway last September. Now, I wasn't allowed to stay on island while the president was there, but Sylvia was. And they filmed a little bit of her for this documentary called Sea of Hope, which um, uh, it premieres next month, hmm. January 15, on, on National Geographic. And uh, they... They have this nice little clip where we had produced this photograph of this new fish, which we were going to name in honor of him. And essentially, Sylvia asked the president for his permission. Is it okay if we name this fish after you? And they have this cute little clip, which they put up on the National Mm -hmm, Geographic mm -hmm. website, which you can go, you know, track down, where where President Obama, you know, pronounces the fish. And he and Sylvia has this little sort of exchange. So he's certainly aware that the fish is being named after him. So what is the process like? I mean, so it's called Tosinoides Obama. I guess Tosinoides is the family how many other members of the family are there close so actually the family is called serenity that's groupers and oh, and so this is a basslet which is part of a subfamily of groupers the little uh, little pink fishes that live on coral reefs mm-hmm. um, and this one the genus tosanoides uh, is has actually had only two known species in it prior to this discovery mm-hmm. and this made the third known species both of the existing ones were found in Japan and huh. so it's not too unusual to find one in Hawaii but we really weren't expecting the what are these uh, what, are, what is this uh, tosanoides Well, they're probably planktivores. Very little is known about their biology. All three species live very, very deep. So Mm -hmm. we have specimens in jars, but we don't have a lot of observations about the kinds of Mm -hmm. things they eat and, and their interactions. But based on their relatives, we assume they probably eat plankton. Do you plan to have a, uh, a live specimen at the Bishop Museum? For we would viewing? love to. So far, only two in the world have ever been collected. They're, they're both specimens, as they need to be, in order to properly name this new species. But um, on our next cruise, one of our high priorities is to try to bring some live ones back and put them in our aquarium on display at the Bishop Museum. hopefully find another species. Uh, when will that uh, cruise be, do you know? Uh, so that would be the Bert Lum fish. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, and I'll be happy to. It's going to be a little prickly fish. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and Arnold little fish. <laughs> the hard thing is finding them. Uh, you know, the Hawaiian, Hawaiian reefs, including the deep reefs, have been so well explored mm-hmm. that discovering a new species of fish in Hawaii is a very, very rare event. Well, congratulations for sure. Very good. And, uh, you know, we just love having you come on and tell us all these fish stories. So. Well, I appreciate it. I really enjoy coming. Thanks, well, Thanks, Rich, for joining us. Thank you, guys. And, of course, we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Casey Lau and Rob Hack to get their insights into the Asia market. What new tech can our companies offer in Asia or vice versa? Of course, we'd love your thoughts or questions as part of that conversation. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or reach us toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're live in the studio. You can tweet us your questions at BiteMarks or at Hawaii. This is BiteMarks Cafe. Aloha, this is Jose Fajardo. As the year draws to a close, we wanted to take a moment to celebrate the remarkable accomplishments made possible by the support of 13,200 listener members, a record-breaking number. The completion of our network of two programming streams across the Hawaiian Islands is a shining example of what we can do together. On behalf of all of us at HPR, mahalo and warmest wishes of the season. Stay tuned for exciting opportunities in 2017. Greetings, this is Madafo. 
Join me as we celebrate Kwanzaa with stories, poems, and music on A Season's Griot from PRI, Public Radio International. This evening at 7, right after Counterspin. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozal. And joining us today are Casey Lau and Rob Hack. Uh, J- Casey is the head of RISA Asia, and we'll have him explain exactly what that is, and is the entrepreneur in residence over at Blue Startups. Rob, meanwhile, is CEO of Insight InterAsia, a company that helps U.S. technology companies sell their products and services throughout Asia. And, of course, how do companies overcome language and cultural barriers? How do they make it in basically a foreign marketplace. And, of course, uh, we'd love to hear your comments and questions, and that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. We want to welcome you all to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having us. Now, we'll start with a little bit of uh, background. So, Casey, tell us a little bit about what is RISA and what do you do when you're back in Hong Kong? R-I-S-E. It's rise. Oh, rise. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for correcting. <laughs> I thought you had the Sorry. wrong guest on yeah. for a minute there, Bert. <laughs> um, so in Hong Kong, I do uh, many things. I help start up the uh, startup community there that we've called Startups HK. And that's basically helping entrepreneurs and founders to uh, you know build their startups, meet investors, see the media, things like that. And I guess that's uh, that kind of work uh, called on uh, a company called Web Summit that came to Asia to open their first conference. Web Summit is one of the biggest conferences in the world for startups, based mm-hmm. out of Dublin, Ireland. And this year, they just did their first one in Lisbon. It had 53,000 attendees from around the world. Mm. So they have one in the U.S. and New Orleans called Collision, and they have one in Hong Kong called Rise. And next July will be the third one we're doing there. And that one, we're expecting about 20,000 people from around the world who are interested in the Asia scene for startups mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and innovation. So you're the AIR at Blue Startups, which, of course, is a accelerated program that is trying to connect with the markets on the other side of the Pacific Ocean. But your background is, is intriguing. I mean, uh, you spent a lot of time in Hong Kong. You're from Canada originally? That's right, Vancouver. So what, what path um, brought you to this and this, this deeper understanding of the Asian marketplace? Well, I think... Uh, I've, I did myself did a dot-com, as they used to call them in the old days. Oh, yes. And we had uh, our dial-up modem. Do you remember that? I do. Yeah, you dial up I ran modems. a dial-up 300 baht? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It was an awesome, that sound. Uh, so our <laughs> office, we, there's two guys. We started a, a dot-com, and we, we were two of us, and we only had one telephone line. So one guy would dial in, download his email, and then get off the line, and the other guy would dial in and download his email, yes. and then send them out when they re- reconnected. That was the old days. And we started an e-commerce business back then. It was the first one out of Hong Kong, raised a lot of money, did a lot of great stuff with it. And I guess from there, I started, uh, I mean, there was a support group there that helped us to like, you know, find office space and give us accounting services and hosting services, things like that. So flash forward to like 2009 and it kind of started to grow again. And uh, I kind of, not, not necessarily on purpose trying to give back, but just kind of helped hand it out that way. At Startups HK was kind of this support mm-hmm. community for startups now mm-hmm. and this second generation um, of of its life, fantastic. And so you were uh, enough 
I guess, have enough experience in Hong Kong that you wanted to not only stay there but see it grow as well. Yeah, that's right. I definitely think uh, – so Hong Kong has been my home for like 20 years now. Mm-hmm. So I really I feel uh, you know close close to it. And I see a lot of great things happen out of it. A lot of companies are growing. A lot of things are happening. And I think that it's one of the better cities to move into if you're coming from the U.S. or Europe, if you're coming into Asia. As we speak, a lot of people speak English there. That's another big, big scary thing that people don't understand. When they came to Rise the first time, they were shocked that so many people spoke English. <laughs> well, I was going to just ask you, like, did you have any, uh, let's say, language competency in, in Cantonese? Myself, personally? Yes. Uh, I can... I can order any dim sum without looking at the menu. And really, that's that's important. That's that is like actually that's all. I can do cha siu yeah, bao, bao yeah. and that's basically you're fine. That's it. Really, now, that's great. Okay, Rob, uh, we were introduced to you through uh, Bileng Chua from High Beam, and we frequently have her on specifically to talk about. They do trade missions to Asia. She has a very strong focus mm-hmm. there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, connections to Singapore, but tell us about your organization and um, uh, Insight Inter Asia and your background to understanding this marketplace. Um, I know Beelang through a few different avenues. One is we sit on a board together that I'll explain in a minute. But my company, Insight InterAsia, I founded it in 2006 in Singapore. And uh, I was living in Tokyo at the time. And I wanted to um, go back to Singapore where I had been based earlier in my career. And it was just an easier place to start up a business at that time. Mm. Uh, still is. I mean, you can literally get off the plane and start up a business in Singapore within 30 minutes. Um, it's just incredibly easy to do business there. So I set up this company to be um, essentially a trading company, a sales agent for very high-tech products um, from uh, the U.S. Uh, and Europe into Asia, mostly in the semiconductor marketplace. But we did a lot at that time in nanotechnology uh, when there were actually real products in nanotechnology. Since then, it sort of moved on to just be an enabling technology, if you will. Mm. Um, and we, we still represent a few companies in that regard. But I moved to uh, Hawaii five years ago simply to be geographically in the middle of Asia and the U.S. mainland because I, even though I loved Singapore, I was very tired of just the travel back and forth to the mainland. Um, there, there were very few direct flights. Um, and a lot of people in Singapore actually talk about days when there were direct flights to Hawaii because a lot of airlines would refuel here before mm-hmm. they would carry on to the mainland. But it doesn't exist anymore. So Anyway, um, I wound up here and uh, have just uh, fell in love with it. It was more of a a logic standpoint getting Mm. me here. But since I've been here, I've uh, uh, adored it and I love it. My family loves it. So it leads me into how else do I know um, Miss Bileng Chua? And we sit on a board together of the Hawaii Pacific Export Council, also known as HPEC. And that is a um, quasi-U.S. Department of Commerce organization that's based over at Pier 2. And um, we are charged with training and helping companies of any size, but they really turn out to be small companies, on how to export. Mm. And when you're in Hawaii, the closest exports are Asia. And by and large, I would say that's um, Japan, mostly Korea. But there's a lot of interest in Taiwan here. Of course, China for the size. But um, I think in that regard, Taiwan punches above its weight in terms of the interest level of people ready to export. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, it's great to hear that you actually found benefit in, in Hawaii being sort of in the middle of East and West. And what I wanted to explore with both of you is the fact that, you know, we have always uh, courted this idea that 
you know, east meets west. Crossroads of the Pacific. Crossroads of the Pacific. There's always, you know, in Hawaii, there's already existing this sort of cultural exchange between the Asian culture and, and Western culture. But now there are a lot of programs that are emphasizing uh, the opportunity that might exist for companies to perhaps uh, expand into Asia. And, and, and Casey, I mean, you, you're in directly involved in, in something that Blue Startups is doing called East Meets West. And, and uh, we've had Shanoa come on a number of times. And uh, this has been a project of hers to sort of bring some of the things that are happening in the East and getting, you know, some of the companies that are going through the, the, the you know, the uh, Blue Startup cohorts to get together and, and sort of meet up. Where do you see the the opportunity? I mean, given the fact that Asia is a big market, I mean, does Hawaii fit into that? I think Hawaii, in the way the Blue Startups is set up, as well as the East Meets West Conference, kind of like what Rob is saying, I think that it's a place that's it, the crossroads kind of thing. I think that as I, as I go through the program now with this cohort that we're in right now, I see that Hawaii offers a lot to Asian startups who are looking to come into the U.S. market. It's very difficult, I think, for Japanese or Korean startups just to go all the way to San Francisco. I think that's going to be very difficult, very tough for them. I think actually a stop through a, a program here in Hawaii or even time spent here in Hawaii to get used to not only the startup world through America, but mm-hmm. America in general. Mm-hmm. You know, even being here for the last couple of months, I've learned a lot of stuff about the American economy and how it works that, you know, you read about, but until you're lining up for postal stamps or trying to pay a bill – you don't, you don't understand. And you don't understand the problems that are being solved by tech companies in the U.S. unless you're actually here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's what I think is, is a big thing. And as well, the other way is around. I think that the U.S. Americans are just not going to jump into Shanghai or Beijing, right? As, let's be honest. It's a tough, tough jump. But coming to Hawaii, it's the close. It's still America, but I see a, a lot of an Asian influence here. You know, I've never seen udon shops so easily found. You know, even McDonald's sells um, instant noodles. It's amazing. <laughs> Right, so I think that this is a great place to, to come for both sides, and I think that that is something that Hawaii has to work on more, and not being such a because uh, a lot of people I talk to, like say in Japan, they're like, oh, Hawaii, that's where everybody goes to for resort and things like that, right? I'm like, well, did you know there's like five, six accelerators here, and there's like a handful of co-work spaces, and there's things going on here. There's a, there's a thing here that can be cultivated, and I think it will happen sooner than later. So that's, that's certainly something that uh, that Hawaii struggles with quite a bit. I I do. Like what you just said, in the sense of we're always right. I think being in Hawaii and perhaps affiliated or thinking largely from a Western point of view, people will say Hawaii is a good way to move to the east. But what you said, I, and I remember now, I also participated in part of the in a blue startups cohort as well, number six, and we had key reply. They were from Singapore, and they kind of came this way and seeing value that Hawaii can offer to Asian companies. I mean, Rob, uh, you talk about uh, some interest in the in the market from local companies, small companies there, do you feel an energy pushing the other way from the east toward the west through Hawaii? Certainly. I think Hawaii should do something at the state level to market its ability to be that bridge to the mainland U.S. Um, You often hear Americans will talk about when they go to Singapore, they get sent to Singapore to live and they consider it Asia light or diet Asia, if you will. And I think for Japanese or Koreans or whomever that come to Hawaii, they sort of look at Hawaii as being america light, and that there's a lot of things here that relate to an Asian population culturally, but 
it's not exactly the same politically. A small company that was coming here to set up an operation or be involved in one of the accelerators would find a more nurturing incubator environment than they would find in their own home country. They would find investors who are not necessarily willing to um, invest for significant shares of the company, which they would find in their own company. Mm -hmm. Here you could invest for you know, some tens of percent. Uh, and I find that um, a lot of the um, the issues for moving here for a small company from Japan or Korea, particularly Japan, is language. But I ser- I've, I've met several co- small Korean companies, Taiwan companies, and even some Chinese companies that are here simply for that reason because they found it was an interesting and easy jumping off point rather than as Casey said, going to San Francisco right, or right. L.A. or somewhere Well, else. you know, and, and Casey, you bring up, I mean, that's a, that's a great, I guess, uh, differentiator for Hawaii to perhaps be the place where you can get acclimated to, uh, you know, a more uh, Western or maybe a, a Silicon Valley kind of a, a environment. But what do you tell the startup that says, hey, I don't need, I don't need the waiting pool. I just want to jump in, like, into the deep you know, deep side of the pool, and I just want to go to the West Coast. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's if you're ready for that, I think that's good. And I think a lot of people have done that. I've met companies, or not companies, but like houses in San Francisco that are set up by Japanese people to welcome other Japanese entrepreneurs into San Francisco, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think, you know, it, it's up to you. It's, it really depends on the entrepreneur, right? I think that, uh, but I think that a lot of these young people who are doing startups, and we're talking early 20s, 20s, right? Uh-huh. And they're uh, not necessarily, they have to think about many other things besides jumping into, you know, San Francisco and dealing with all that as, at, the, at the beginning, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, uh, no, I just think that it depends on the entrepreneur. My experience is the people that do that, what you just suggested, mm-hmm. just jump right in, mm-hmm. are kids that went to school. Uh, let's say you're a Singaporean uh, kid, you went to school at USC mm-hmm. in Los Angeles okay. or or New York or University of Miami or Houston, wherever you went to school, right. they get there, they learn a lot, they like the local system. Of course, they'd like to be home with their parents and, what, and all of that. But they realize like, wow, it's much easier for me to do what I want to do here in Houston or, you know, what we should be trying to do is incubate them to right. do mm-hmm. it here in mm-hmm. Hawaii. Right? No. But, but that's what I see, uh, those students that are sticking around and starting up businesses. Well, you said that you think that perhaps the the state should take a bigger role in promoting Hawaii as this place to be uh, uh, nurtured into sort of like the Western culture. What do you think the state needs to do? I mean, they, they've already given, they, they give money to the high growth initiative. I mean, they're, they're sure. actually committing money to some of these uh, uh, accelerator uh, programs. What else do you think they might need to do? Certainly road shows, getting out uh, to the economic development departments in Asia. Um, D, um, DBIT? DBIT could go out to their counterparts in Singapore or Hong Kong or Japan or whatever and explain that Hawaii is open for business, right? But wasn't, um, wasn't at some point, this was perhaps you know previously maybe 10, 15 years ago, DBIT was – pretty frequent about going to Japan or going to Taiwan and doing sort of trade missions, taking companies and introducing them and participating in some conferences. Sure. Has that has that diminished because of no. the accelerator and, and no, the startup uh, initiatives? No, I think, in fact, the, the state of Hawaii and DBET does a very good job of helping small 
medium-sized companies export from Hawaii, giving them training to do that. Oh, but I bringing, see. Uh, I bringing businesses the other way, I mm-hmm. think it takes – right, right. it's a different mentality completely. And it, maybe it's not DBA, maybe it's somebody else, but it, it, it's a completely different mindset, right? And so we've helped – through that um, HPEC organization I explained, we have several programs throughout the year where we teach uh, companies about specific topics or we also like marketing or finance or how to do certain things in Asia. But we also have an Export University 101, which is a one-day intensive course that covers lots of those different topics. And Mm -hmm. I think the next one is February 23rd here in Oahu. So, you know, Casey, I mean, uh, Rob mentioned, you know, a lot of people say Singapore is Asia light. It's a, it, they speak a lot of English. The, you can step off the plane and get a business going. Um, but uh, what are your thoughts in terms of those channels? So let's say you are a Hawaii startup and you have a product that you think might find a market fit in Asia. Um, even though we're in a distributed online world, it sounds to me, for example, that uh, being on the ground is one thing that's still important to do business in many of these countries. Where would you start? Where would you recommend or where would you say someone not start? Well, I guess, again, it depends on the type of business sure, you're running, sure. right? Um, but I definitely think the two Asia light cities in Asia are definitely Hong Kong and Singapore. Mm-hmm. Those are the places that you'd want to go to first. They're like the Hawaii's of Asia, in a way. Mm-hmm. You go there, you get a lot of mixture of both sides. There's a Starbucks everywhere. There's an Orange Julius. You know, you'll feel right at home. Um, but again, it really depends on what it is. And I think both uh, Hong Kong and Singapore, the great thing about these two places is they're competing against each other to be the startup capital of Asia, right, outside of, say, Beijing and places like that. Um, and so there's a lot of government support. There's a lot of funding. There's a lot of connections. There's a lot of free taxes and all these kind of incentives to get companies to move to one of these two um, cities. Now, now, oh, go ahead. Well, the, is there so it's, you, you mentioned, for example, that uh, some places they're competing, they're trying to to grow these, nurture these businesses. Is there uh, kind of a home team rah 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 going on? I mean, do these do you see startup uh, co working spaces and startup accelerators the same way you do in? San Francisco or even in Europe, do they function in largely the same way? Yeah, sure. They're all about similar. They all have, they usually focus on one specific vertical. Mm. So right now, I think Hong Kong and Singapore are really competing on the fintech front mm-hmm. because we have a lot of banks there. So the fintech, uh, to claim to be the, the fintech head of uh, Asia would be, uh, would be a quite, a, quite a big win for either city. Um, I think both of them are a little bit very close, but I have to think I think Singapore is a little bit ahead in that because they do a very focused on the whole – Startup thing. Hong Kong has lots of other issues and other problems that you can read the news every day that Singapore doesn't have to deal with. Mm-hmm. So they're able to put, I think, pour more resources into developing their startup and tech scene. Now, Casey, uh, you were kind of agreeing to Rob when uh, he was talking about how to, you know, how would you go about sort of drawing those not only companies but the programs in in let's say Hong Kong to consider Hawaii as being the place to get familiar with Western. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on, on doing How would you yeah. want to expand that in, let's say, the other markets that are in Asia and how to build that awareness of Hawaii? So when I'm in Hong Kong, I get an email a week from some other country that's bringing a trade delegation over or looking to open some sort of office in Hong Kong for their startups mm-hmm. from their country, right? So I get Switzerland, Canada, everybody's trying to get bring somebody over. So I think everybody's in it. So I think that if Hawaii wants to be a player in this, they're going to have to step up and go for it, right? I think that's the main main message that's going to be brought out here. Portugal, you know, 
Lots of economic problems there. They're putting all their money into startups. They supported the Web Summit. You walk around the streets of Lisbon, start your business now. We'll support you. Entrepreneurship is the way to go. You see these messages everywhere. You'll want to get into it. And then you see something like Web Summit come in, bringing all these huge speakers from Silicon Valley, and you just want to be part of it. The young people are all cheering for Gary Vaynerchuk, who is this huge American um, startup guy. Yeah. And uh, it's incredible. So it's the wave of momentum, and I think that it's going to have to start. Un- unfortunately, I don't always like to say it starts from the government because Silicon Valley didn't start with the government, right? right. Mm-hmm. But other, it seems like other ecosystems are going to need to have that kind of a push where the government's actually trying to bring people in. Well, in that example, though, I mean, the, the, the eco- local economy might have been having struggles. It might have been looking for a way to diversify or do something different. I mean, Rob, Hawaii feels very perhaps too confident or comfortable in uh, the visitor industry, for example, or yeah. even military investment. Will there be motivation to try that hard to, to change that? Well, image? that's a very good question. I mean, that, <laughs> the, the Clearly, tourism is where the bread is buttered. Mm-hmm. So if you're a politician, <laughs> you have to follow that uh, industry very closely mm-hmm. and help them as much as you can. So, of course – the people that I've talked to at this, in the state level, they would like more tech companies to be based here. They would like an incubator. They would like they enjoy this model. But how do, how does he implement it? How do you fund it? And it's the kind of thing that has to be done for several years. You can't just say we'll do it for a year and try it and see how it goes. Right? Um, these are the types of things that take five, seven, ten years to even begin to put roots down, and then. What comes out of the other side is a is a higher paying tax base for jobs that are created through the incubators and what have you. So some places are very aggressive, like Singapore, I know, is very aggressive at measuring the jobs that are created and the taxes that are paid be, via the incubated companies. Um, and could we do that here? Sure. But I think that it requires a certain level of commitment that not everybody's willing to take. Right. Well, you know, I, I do want to ask uh, Casey, uh, how did you get on the radar of blue startups or was it the other way around? But before I ask that question, I want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with both Casey Lau and Rob Hack about the challenges in expanding into the Asia market. We'd, of course, love to hear from you. You can send us a tweet on Twitter. Or you can give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. On the next Town Square, we'll reflect on the end of the year in politics with our guest Chuck Friedman, a longtime Democratic Party political strategist. We'll look at the 2016 presidential race, the future of Hawaii's political parties, and how politics in Hawaii has changed over the years. That's this Thursday at 5 on Town Square. Happy New Year from Toast of the Nation. I'm your host, Christian McBride. To celebrate the new year, we've got a party that's guaranteed to start off 2017 just right, baby. From Blue Note venues all around the country and the world, we're going to hear sets from some of the best jazz artists performing today. It's a New Year's Eve party you can't miss. That's Toast of the Nation from WBGO and NPR Music. New Year's Eve from 4 to 10 p.m. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Sacred Hearts Academy, and Urgent Care Hawaii. 
Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Casey Lau and Rob Hawk about keys to success in Asia. And, of course, you can give us a call. That number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Right before the break, you know, we were actually not so much talking about Hawaii companies going to Asia, but how do you bring some of the potential startup companies to Hawaii to see if they could perhaps get a uh, get a uh, acclimation to, you know, doing business in the West. And I wanted to find out from Casey. Casey, I mean, how did you even hear about Blue Startups? I mean, did, was it something that you got, uh, you know, got on your radar or did Shanoa find you on her radar? Where, where did yeah, you... actually, that's a good point. So like Rob was saying, there needs to be delegations going out, I think, and telling people about Hawaii. And so that's exactly what happened. Somebody came from Blue Startups to Hong Kong to our event and basically recruited me to come to Hawaii, which was in a very hard sell, right, uh, for the first Eats Meets West conference back in uh, 2014. Mm-hmm. So that's how it basically started. And I've been a guest speaker at the last two, and now somehow I'm putting on the show in 2017. Oh, very good. <laughs> well, so, Rob, I mean, is there – again, it takes years for someone to – for the identity to get out there, for the momentum to build. Would you say that there's any awareness, uh, apart from maybe meeting at a great conference um, in Asia or uh, – elsewhere that Hawaii has something starting here, that there is a a growing ecosystem for startups? Not that I'm aware of. One of the things that I um, tell the companies that I consult to on how to sell to Asia or market to Asia is to make sure you make it clear that your product is made in or designed in Hawaii, that Hawaii has extremely positive uh, word association this the word Hawaii. Nobody thinks uh, that that's a bad term. It's an extremely positive term in the marketing world. And I always compare it to, say, Transylvania. If you had a product that was designed or built in Transylvania, wouldn't you just think, I don't, I don't know that I want that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, wouldn't you think, uh, that's not exactly what I'm looking for. But as soon as you hear the word Hawaii, everybody has a very positive idea about it, whether you're in Japan, you're in Germany, you're in Kansas City, Brazil. It doesn't matter. Hawaii has a very positive term. So when you're a Hawaii company, you're trying to sell to Asia – Certainly Japan and Korea. I mean, there's no, no question about that. Just using the word Hawaii makes people smile, right? Now, when you go to Hawaii, the, when you go to Japan and you start talking about Hawaii is open for business, I don't think that anybody there has that. But it's a, it's a different message. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. People think Hawaii is Waikiki too. Right. Right, and it's not. That's a big, big misconception. Well, so, you know, like in, let's say, Osaka, right? Osaka, there's, you know, there's uh, co-working spaces, there's accelerators, there's a lot of things happening there. But how do you, how do you get the Hawaii startup brand or even like this idea of startup paradise recognized in that kind of a marketplace? I think it's going to take, uh, obviously, success stories. We have big companies coming out of here. I still think it's just a bunch of uh, people from here going out and just showing people how great it is. Because I, I think, like Rob's saying, it's true. It's like Hawaii has a great name. Like Osaka, people are not like, Osaka, wow, I can't wait to go to Osaka. It's not like a, a thing. Maybe Tokyo has that, right? Mm-hmm. I know Fukuoka also is trying to build up their startup scene. So think about that. We Hawaii is trying to fight with a lot of other American cities. Fukuoka is trying to fight amongst Tokyo and Osaka, the huger, bigger cities, trying to start their own startup scene, right? And they're pushing a lot of resources into that, get, make that to be a tech hub in Japan. Well, you, you know, you, you, um, you asked a question that that people have to go out there and actually do the the job of of perhaps evangelizing Hawaii. Yeah. But who 
would that person be? And in the case of Blue going out to, let's say, the conference that, that you f- were putting on, um, I mean, it behooves them to actually go out and do that kind of outreach. But outside of Blue, who else would be doing that? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. But I, I don't know who. I don't know enough about the Hawaiian startup scene to think it. But it, it would have to be local companies, I think, that want to show up innovation that's happening here. And just mm-hmm. my experience with Blue, and you know, uh, they 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 always do their Keystone Week in San Francisco. I know f- from the first one when we talked about it to when I actually got to participate in it, there was a- already now a small and growing understanding in the valley that there's stuff happening here you know it's not a it's not an austin it's not a boston but they know that there's there's energy there's something coming there but you know the cachet that uh, hawaii uh brings is is only a small step of that i i did want to go back to rob i mean you talked about how certain verticals have certain strengths and because of your background in uh electronics i imagine that would be more hardware uh versus software for example sure. um that's something that i know that uh, through uh through Beeling and, and local manufacturers, something that people are always interested in. Is there uh, a specific market in Asia that you see as attractive for someone trying to get into the hardware space? Certainly, almost anywhere in Asia, at least the developed economies in Asia, are manufacturing the world's electronics. That's no secret right, right. to anybody, right? You, I, we all have an iPhone here, and I, in the box it says designed in California. What it doesn't say is the next sentence is it's <laughs> not made there. It's made in China and Taiwan and lots of components from elsewhere. But I think compared to even five years ago, there's a lot of opportunity for small companies who are in the electronic space, the semiconductor space, who don't manufacture anything. They just design components and they have them uh, fabricated in one of these uh, houses in in Asia somewhere. Uh, A a big name in that is Foxconn, but there's many smaller ones. And lots of companies I know because I sell their products, um, American companies that design sensors, um, the sensor explosion is coming, and we could easily have sensor companies um, from Hawaii. Why not? Um, they don't have to manufacture anything. Right. Maybe just a simple prototype device, uh, and that equipment isn't expensive, but they, they get it manufactured in Asia. I think well, you make a good point in terms of the design versus the manufacture, but one of the other concerns is that uh, designs can be replicated. Mm-hmm. I mean, Casey, if uh, if you designed the greatest sensor in the world and you shopped it around uh, – you know, trying to find someone to make it for you so you could sell 100,000 of them. Um, how do you know that that design doesn't go the same way that there are now 30 different phones that look exactly like the iPhone? Yeah, I think that uh, obviously the copycat thing is a huge thing in China. But I think that they only copy something if it's already proven to be successful. You wouldn't have seen an iPhone copy when the iPhone came out, right? You only see an iPhone copy once everybody wants one. And they're just, the people who are making it are just trying to fulfill that demand for it. So I, I would like to hear maybe Rob, you know, uh, you talk about companies that might have some hardware specialty that could find a niche uh, in Asia. Would their opportunity be different? Let's say going into the Hong Kong market versus uh, let's say the Japan market or the Korean market, and what would they need to do to succeed in any of those markets because they're all very different sure. language-wise and cultural. That's a very good question. What I again, what I put together on my slide deck when I'm consulting to companies. And I tell them on the very first few slides is that Asia, the word, and I'm using air quotes around mm-hmm, the word Asia, mm-hmm. Asia 
is not one big monolithic market, but there's many, many markets there. Um, in fact, uh, fairly recently, even north, northern and southern Japan were considered different markets for certain electronic goods because they were operating on a different voltage. And so uh, what I consult to companies, and I, I push it very strongly, one is make sure you're using the word Hawaii in your product marketing. But secondly, pick one market and then attack that. And use your successes or lessons learned in that market to move on to the second one. So most companies in Hawaii are attracted to Japan. That's partly cultural. It's partly possibly language. But I just think that there's a lot of traffic moving back and forth between the two. So most 90% of the companies we talk to are very interested in Japan. And you have Korea. But of course – it, there might be some food products that are not technology-oriented that might be going to um, Vietnam or Myanmar or somewhere like that. But let's just focus on the tech products and say I advise them pick one country and deal with that first. So let's say you're going to Japan. The biggest mistake I see people show up in Japan is they think – maybe a little bit opposite than Hong Kong – they think everybody in Japan speaks English. And that's just very far from the truth, especially when you get down below the CEO or head engineering level. The, the, the working level engineers probably speak little or no English. And if they do, they're embarrassed to use it. Mm -hmm. So you have to uh, have a translator, have your marketing materials. All of these things have to be set up in Japanese and proofread by a real mm -hmm. Japanese uh, marketing person. Don't run it through uh, Google Translate. No, no. So, yeah. but I, try, I, I see too many people do that. <laughs> English in the other direction. Oh, it's terrible. So Rob talked about how you know there's different markets. There are actual differences. Uh, Casey, do you have maybe an example of how making an assumption about the broad market might lead to a misunderstanding between you know uh, Hong Kong versus Shanghai versus uh, Taiwan. Seoul? Yeah, well, I mean, obvi the obvious one is Hong Kong is uh, usually sold as a gateway to China. I guess maybe 10, 20 years ago it was that because it was, in fact, the gateway to China. So uh, Hong, Hong, Hong Kong, Kong, Hong Kong, yeah. because it's right there. Yeah. Um, we speak English and, uh, you know, China was still very mysterious back then. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, since it's so open, uh, Hong Kong is no longer a gateway to China. If you want to go to China, you just go to China. You go to Shenzhen, you go to Shanghai, you go to Beijing. You can actually do business right away. And in some, some places, it's quite uh, stunning to me that they speak better English than they do in Hong Kong now, right? So this is uh, another thing. Like, Hong Kong could be considered like a Hawaii. It's resting on its laurels of a lot of things that it has already, property, banking, logistics, all these kind of staples in Hong Kong make it kind of slower to move around, whereas China has a lot to gain a lot and will risk more to get to that point. So I think that if you're looking to do going to Asia, you know, looking at the, which is the best market for you, obviously – um, you know, you have to be very, very uh, – do your research on which ones you're going to choose before you go there. Well, I'd like to hear what you think about the idea that if a Hawaii company or a U.S. company wants to do business in, in Asia, whether it's Japan or, or, or China, uh, is there an attitude in any of those markets of a not-invented-here kind of attitude? Like they might be – they might show you initially that they might be interested, but they're not really interested I don't know. That could happen anywhere. If you were an Asian company coming and trying to sell something in, uh, you know, Kansas City, I'm picking on them unfairly. But mm -hmm. if they, <laughs> th there could be the same thing. And the guy in Kansas City could say, "Hey, it's interesting. Let me see. Let me learn a little bit more." But no, I don't find that. I find that um, people are busy, 
And if you show up and they accept a meeting and you have something good to to sell them, mm-hmm. they they're not going to waste their time. They're not going to waste your time. Um, I think everybody's time is too short these days. Mm-hmm. They, they just want to get down to it. Mm. One of the things that uh, I heard you speak about before, Casey, is sort of like right now for some things in Asia, you basically take a successful model from the West and hope to just replicate it but for Asia. So Uber, but for Asia. Uh, Airbnb, but for Asia. I mean, is that a strategy? We know that doesn't work, right? Yeah. It is not uh, not the very – even Uber can't do Uber for China anymore. No. Right? <laughs> so I think that's a, that's a very big uh, difference now. And I think, I think that as the users get more sophisticated in Asia, I think that you can't just copy and paste anymore. You have to tailor, the, tailor it for an Asian market. And, and again, like Rob said, it's not you know, just Asia. It's – all these little smaller countries with different customs and different cultures and different languages that you have to uh, figure out for. Like, I guess when you're in America, I don't know about doing business in the States, but New York and L.A., I guess, you know, you could sell it almost basically similar to both of those kind of people, right? Mm-hmm. But you know, like, <laughs> Korea and uh, South Korea and North Korea is completely different right, already, sure. right? Now, now, what are you consulting uh, the uh, the startups that are going through the, the cohorts uh, uh, with Blue are you telling them, hey, focus on getting your business up and running in the U.S. and then think about Asia? Or, uh, you know, I know some companies that want to maybe want to go into Hong Kong, but they're not quite even, you know, established in, yep. in the U.S. Yep. I mean, what do you tell them? I think it's very difficult. Uh, it's very specific to where they are in their process, right? So if it's a property company that's getting um, – there, there's one company that does crowdfunding mm-hmm. and uh, for property, mm-hmm. which I find to be a fascinating concept that's being able to be utilized through the Jobs Act here in the U.S. Crowdfunding in, in Asia is very, very touchy subject in some countries, right? So that company may not want to move to Asia okay. just yet. And then there's another company that does fantasy, fantasy sports mm-hmm. and is seeing a lot of traffic coming from China to their English website, right? So that company may be looking to mm. enter that market or try to explore that market first before fully entering it. But that's what I, what, how I see it. Because with the internet, we can also see what's going on with where traffic's coming from, who's interested in what, and be able to look around at those places a little bit easier. So, Rob, uh, if someone wanted to find more information about your company and the services that you provide in consulting, where can they go to learn more? InsightInterAsia.com. I, I have a shortened URL to it, IIA.SG for Singapore. Very Fantastic. Good. And, and uh, Casey, just real quickly, uh, tell us a little bit what, when uh, East Meets West is coming up. The East Meets West conference is uh, January 19th and 20th at the Hilton Hawaiian Village. Two days. It's awesome. We've got great speakers coming from Asia. And you're putting from, that together? I'm, I'm helping putting it together. Yeah, there's a team that puts it together. But it's, uh, it's going to be very exciting and very Hawaiian, I think, this time, rather than sitting inside a ballroom listening to speakers all day. We're going to be out there surfing and oh, wow. ped- peddling with investors great. and all kinds of crazy stuff. Fantastic. Sounds good. Well, Casey Lau is the entrepreneur in residence over at Blue Startups. And Rob Hack is uh, CEO of Insight InterAsia. We want to thank you both for joining us today. Well, thank you very much Thanks for, for having, having us. us. Yeah, thanks wonderful. a lot. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week in 2017 where we can talk to two companies that are graduating from the latest Blue Startup cohort. And, of course, if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And, of course, if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. You can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And, of course, we're wishing you a very happy new year. And, of course, stay tuned for exciting developments at HPR to come in 2017. Ooh. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Always remember.